This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We're all mourning the loss of a crash that took place over the weekend involving a bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos. 15 killed. Questions remain on, of course, uh, how this could possibly have happened. Uh, I was uh, talking to some people in the newsroom. Uh, Oddly enough, my son had a hockey tournament this weekend. Uh, his last one of the season, and boy, you could uh, you could tell there were heavy hearts. Uh, pretty much, I bet, in every rink right across the land. Let's bring in Adam McVicker, videographer with Global News, and he is with us now. Adam, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No, thank you for having me. Uh, what can you tell us about the misidentified victim? This seems to be the latest story coming out of this tra- uh, tragedy. What can you tell us about this, Adam? Well, just just horrible news coming down this morning out of the coroner's office in Saskatchewan here. Um, they've misidentified one of the players. They said uh, Xavier LaBelle had passed away. That's what they were saying uh, when they originally sent out the release with the 15 uh, names of the victims. Uh, this morning, unfortunately, they did a misidentification. Uh, Xavier LaBelle is alive this morning. Uh, Parker Tobin Uh, a goaltender on the team, passed away. They said it's a lot of trauma. It's a lot of because they all have the blonde hair, obviously the the tradition Mm. for the Humboldt Broncos, dye your blonde hair, and very similar builds. They're all around the same age, all athletic hockey players. So there was a lot of factors going into the identification process, and they said uh, basically it was uh, not too much information they're releasing at this point of how they identified Xavier uh, late last night or early this morning, but basically that that process how was ongoing and uh, into late last night. So what about the families of, of these two boys? How has this affected their scenario? When did they find out about this? Do we know anything there? It sounds like the families were notified immediately when the coroner's office and the RCMP found out they reached out. We're hearing some people talking around the arena that Xavier LaBelle's family was at the vigil here in Humboldt last night. They weren't even in the hospital. Um, We're still working to confirm that, of course, but it sounds like um, the... RCMP and the coroner's office let the, let the families know almost immediately when they found out the RCMP and the coroner's office, the Ministry of Justice in Saskatchewan, uh, apologizing this morning and saying the families were very understanding uh, uh, based on the situation. Of course, that's just a, a prime example of the fluidity of this entire situation here in Humboldt, uh, just all the calls and all did so much different things happening just across the, the city and across the province right now. So Parker uh, Tobin's family was originally thought he had survived and then was told that he didn't make it? From what it sounds like, that he, he was listed as in hospital, uh, injured but in hospital. Um, so I, I'm not sure exactly what right. they knew mm-hmm. based on the information that was provided, but it sounds like the, late last night, early this morning, they received the news that their son had tragically passed away. Oh, my. So, uh, and what do we know about the condition of Xavier, do we? They, uh, the RCMP coroner's office, as well as the Ministry of Justice, could not comment on that because Xavier is in Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon, as are many of the players that were on the bus. A few, ha- uh, I know uh, Nick Shavlansky, one of the players, has been released from hospital, but many of the players still in hospital. They say it is not their jurisdiction to comment on the uh, nature of the injuries that these players are receiving. That is uh, the hospital's territory at this point. 
Uh, and but but at this point, we understand that there's only one player that has been released to this point. Uh, based on what I know, Nick Shemlansky, uh, he was released from hospital in Saskatoon. He was here last night at the vigil. Uh, blonde hair, of course, mm-hmm. with, as as was the rest of the team. He released a statement earlier this morning saying he's grateful for all the support the team has been receiving. They're seeing it, they're hearing it, uh, they're feeling it, and he says he's he's. Uh, it's a miracle. Uh, he got out of the crash with the injuries he did. He had some visible bumps and scrapes and bruises, but uh, he said the team is, is grateful for what's been com- transpiring around the nation at this point. And incredible when you think about this man being out of the hospital and considering the, the condition of the rest. And what do we know about the conditions of those that are still in hospital? Uh, from what I understand, very severe injuries. Very severe injuries, of course. Now, they're not commenting on the condition of each of the people in hospital. I do know the team trainer uh, is still in hospital, and she's a player, uh, a trainer, sorry, for the team. Uh, It sounds like her injuries are critical right now. That's based on multiple reports from people in hospital and people close to the team. It sounds like she is still in hospital critical condition, but... When it when it, when it comes to other players or anyone else in hospital right now, nobody is commenting on the condition of them at this time. Uh, we all watched uh, from across the country uh, the vigil last night. You were there. What was that like? Describe it. Uh, this this being in this town is it's incredible to see what people are doing. I was here early yesterday morning uh, after being in Nipawin Friday and Saturday at the crash site. Uh, we spoke to I spoke to many people, former players, former coaches, telling me that this is sadly like a, a reunion for a lot of them coming back to Humboldt, seeing each other for one last time, um, seeing it's their dream to be a Bronco. People around here are doing what they can, and of course, the, the team president last night saying. Today, we are all humble Broncos, and that team aspect of, of people working together here, doing what they can to help, is what I'm seeing the most here. A 17-year-old named Mitch I talked to yesterday works at Boston Pizza here in town. He took extra shifts this weekend to bring food to the arena, to places where people are seeking support. He said Tyler Bieber, the play-by-play host, was his basketball coach, and he went to mm. school with a lot of these Broncos. So um, people doing what they can. The vigil, very emotional last night. Uh, all eyes in the city were on that vigil. Uh, TVs were placed all over the city. Uh, different overflow rooms in here uh, in the arena filled to capacity. Different overflow rooms around the city filled to capacity. And, of course, last night would have been the game six in the series between the Humboldt Broncos and the Nippon Hawks. Uh, 7.30 p.m. at the arena. And so at 7.30 p.m. last night, a moment of silence was observed and you could hear a pin drop across the city. Does the, does the city have any idea that the rest of the country is is just heart struck with them that they're just they, they're just overwhelmed with grief? Do, do they do they feel that support? They're, uh, from what I'm hearing from people I'm speaking to on the ground here, they can feel that support. They can see that support. Obviously, the prime minister here yesterday, mm-hmm. the Saskatchewan's premier Scott Moe here yesterday. Don Cherry, Ron McLean in attendance yesterday. A lot of key figures are paying attention to this. They're seeing that the Pope is commenting on this. The royal family is also commenting on this. A lot of people are are seeing that, feeling that, and and understanding that, uh, you know, the world and the nation is with them. Uh, What can you tell us about the accident? Um, uh, What can you tell us about this stretch of road? So basically what we noted was that uh, that highway there is a notorious highway. That corner there is a notorious corner as well. Um, 
heading into Nipawin there, there's a patch of trees. As you can see, if you drive in rural Canada, some properties just have large trees surrounding them. And from what it looks like is at the corner that it happened, there's a chance that those trees may have played a factor. RCMP not saying a whole lot right now about the crash site uh, and, and what may have happened as they're still investigating the cause here. All I know is the wreckage has been lifted. There is six crosses at that intersection from a previous accident in 1997. Mm. A family lost their life there, but a person that lives on the property told one of my fellow reporters up there, one of my colleagues, Ryan Kessler, yesterday that this corner is just notorious for, for close calls and accidents in mm. this area. Uh, and does it appear at this point, Adam, that it uh, the the bus had the right of way and the transport truck, uh, the, the tractor trailer, was had a stop sign? Is that accurate? There's a stop sign there on Highway 335, and we're not sure which direction each was coming from. But based on what we're looking and purely speculation, it sounds like the bus was coming west to or east to west and the tractor trailer was coming south to north. There's a stop sign going east to west, but at the same time, we don't know the the conditions or anything at the moment that that accident or that crash happened. But um, we, so we don't, I'm not 100% sure based on that, who had the right of way at the time or who saw what at that time. But the driver of the truck, unharmed physically, but mental health supports have been given to him, of course. He's uh, with counselors and, and working on grieving throughout this tragedy. Uh, and we understand that he was in custody for a while, or uh, what can you tell us about that? From what I gather, no charges have been laid. Police obviously spoke to him at some point uh, after the crash, but uh, it, it came out soon after that he was uninjured and that he is no longer uh, in custody. No charges have been laid at the time. It's, it's now just making sure he has the the mental health support in place because obviously uh, I'd imagine he is in just pure uh, disbelief at this point. My goodness. Uh, so what's next as this moves forward, Adam? What, what happens? A, vi- a vigil actual, uh, obviously last night. How, what's it? What's it like there today? Well, what's happening now is I'm actually still in the arena, the Elgar Peterson Arena, home of the Humboldt Broncos. I've been here all morning long, seeing people come through. Um, Things are starting to pick up here again after yesterday. It was very quiet this morning, very somber. Some people coming in, sitting down, just paying their respects, seeing, um, you know, the, the memorial. The memorial is being taken down right now from what we've seen, but... At 11.30 here, local time, uh, there is a press conference. The Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League is holding a press conference to talk about the supports that will be made available to players and people that have been impacted by the crash. School in Humboldt is cancelled today. There's no students in class. And when they go back to school tomorrow, there will be supports in place uh, for those students to talk about it because obviously these Humboldt Broncos were their classmates and their friends, you know, outside of hockey. So that's going to be in place as well. Speaking to the pastor, the team's chaplain, it sounds like the church is going to be doing quite a bit here because, you know, now we're noticing a lot of a lot of the national media who was here last night for the vigil, they're starting to leave as well. Things are quieting down on that front. But the supports uh, are now going to be in place, you know, starting immediately. Uh, we were watching the memorial, uh, or the vigil last night, and uh, obviously the the front portion of the ice uh, had chairs and such on it, and then you know the Broncos logo there with the flowers 
all around yeah. uh, the logo and such. Tell us about the people yeah. that were sitting on the ice surface there. Uh, it was just so moving watching them before the service started, uh, just embracing each other. And, 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 and even though we couldn't hear what they were talking about, we could imagine what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, when it comes to these these hockey teams, the Humboldt Broncos, small-town hockey teams, is that you have the families of the victims, but not only do you have the families of the victims, you have the people the victims were living with, the billets. For people who don't do, who aren't very familiar with hockey, you have the people putting up these, these players in their homes in town, local Humboldt families putting up these players as they spend time here in Humboldt to, you know, throughout their junior career here. So you have the families of the victims plus their billet families, you know, a lot of quiet basements and, and, and rooms in Humboldt today because of, of that crash. And so uh, a lot of people, families, friends, close-knit people, uh, there was hundreds of people streaming by me hours before the vigil even started, locals just walking over to the arena, people coming in from all over the place. The Prime Minister was sitting down in that area, along with the, the Premier, Scott Moe. A lot of dignitaries from across the province arrived as well. So a lot of families, a lot of friends, and of course, as I mentioned, uh, two hockey greats, uh, Ron McLean and Don Cherry, were also in attendance last night, just to, you know, to be here as well for that. So it's, it's been truly touching to see the support and to see people come together over this tragedy. What more can you tell us about the Prime Minister's visit or even that of Ron McLean or Don Cherry? Any chatter as to where they, if they went any other places, if they met with anybody else? They didn't speak at the service, though, did they? They did not speak yeah. at the service. Um, based on what I've heard is the Prime Minister um, did visit the the victims that are that are recovering in hospital. He did visit Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon yesterday when he did fly in from Ottawa. Uh, same with Ron McLean and Don Sherry. I believe they also visited, but so did uh, uh, Todd McClellan of the Edmonton Oilers and Glenn Gallison yeah. from the Calgary Flames. They also visited as well. So Sheldon Kennedy is here. He's been walking around all over the place, a pillar of support in a way for these people. He's, he's opened himself up completely to media, to people in the arena, everybody just talking to people. Obviously, he's been through something like this as well. He was at the hospital, so it sounds like before they came to Humboldt, a lot of these people stopped in at the hospital to give these boys uh, their best wishes and to let them know, you know, we're thinking of you. All right, one last question. Uh, How do you get through this week? Uh, Funerals, memorial services, what happens? At this point, uh, there's been we haven't heard too much about about that kind of stuff just yet. I mean, it's still so fresh at Mm. this moment, so I'm sure that stuff is, is is is. planned here in the future uh speaking to the pastor today he's expecting some of that soon but as of right now it's all about just making sure the families have that support you know ahead of all of those planned funerals and things like that among along those lines all right adam mcvicker has been with his videographer with global news adam uh, anyone you talk to uh, please pass on our condolences we're all feeling it right the way across the country including here in hamilton best of luck good luck getting through this adam thank you Thank you so much for having me this morning. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Just terrible images of another chemical attack in Syria. Dozens of Syrians, including many women and children, killed in a chemical weapons attack on Saturday in uh, a rebel-held town, a suburb east of Damascus. Syria and Russia have denied Syrian government involvement in the assault. To talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He's with us now. Michael, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Not a problem, Scott. 
Who do we believe here? <laughs> well, well I, I would hope that's pretty obvious who we believe here, and it should not be the Syrians. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, um, so so give, us, give us an update. Tell everybody what happened. Well, look, I mean, again, part of the details are unclear as of right now, and it also depends who you believe. But if you're on the side of angels and you're on the side of democracy, I think you can basically say that Syria launched yet another chemical attack, but this time, once again, on their own people. This is unfortunately the problem with the Syrian government and Assad, their, their leader or dictator or whatever you wish to call him. The problem is that although things have been a little quiet in Syria, you know, since the Arab Spring died down and things have been sort of to the point where U.S. President Donald Trump was thinking of going ahead with a campaign promise he had made during the 2016 presidential election, which was to pull American troops out of Syria, this past weekend, I think he found another reason, or at least I hope he found a reason, to stay in. Because clearly it's quite volatile there. Clearly Assad is now sort of flexing his muscle yet again, and he's going after his own people. He's also obviously, you know, pointing fingers and pointing weapons at other countries, and that includes Israel, who is an ally of the United States and of this country, Canada. So I think we have to be realistic about it and sort of look at this event and say it's more of the same when it comes to the Syrian government. It's really time, I think, for the West to look at ways or consider ways to bring down the Assad government. I know some people in this day and age don't like to talk about intervention or having countries like the United States and others intervene in different matters and other government affairs. But when you have a madman like that at the helm of certain mm. locations, in this case being a country and a very powerful country in the Arab world, I think you have to more, look more realistically at it. And for Donald Trump especially, whatever he promised two years ago has to be taken off the table now. And I think with, say, John Bolton, the new national security advisor, coming on board, I think that the American view, or at least the American position, towards fallen foreign policy when it comes to the Arab world, the Middle East, etc., is going to change dramatically, probably as early as of today. How can Russia say that it was two Israeli F-15 warplanes launching these strikes? How do they, how do they justify that statement? Yeah, it doesn't also make a lot of sense when you consider the fact that Russia and Israel have been on better relations or better terms for the last, let's say, two to three years. It seems actually kind of facile or, or re relatively foolish to actually go after Israel in such a fashion, especially when Israel really had no reason at that point in time to do anything, simply because Syria hadn't gone after them in a while. But again, this is the way that the Russians deflect attention. Russia and Syria have had a very strong relationship for decades. Russia used to supply arms, and according to some reports, still supply arms directly to the Syrian government. There is a tie there. And for that reason, they wanted to take the heat off of Syria as quickly as they could, take the heat off of themselves, which is obviously a primary concern, and place it on another country. Because of the way things are going with the U.S., the easiest thing to do is just to sort of blame Israel which, in fact, all Israel was doing was basically defending itself after the Syrians sort of launched things or looked in their general direction and started attacking them with chemical weapons. That's the real problem here. So why are the Russians doing it? Because they just don't want to be blamed for the act. Is the world going to believe them? I would say certainly in the Western dem democracy and democratic countries such as Canada, no.
We all know what happened last time uh, President Trump saw these pictures on TV. He retaliated with an attack. Is it time, you were mentioning it's time to bring Assad down. How do yep. we do that with Russia on their side, and, and how does that complicate things? Well, the difficulty is that there are a lot of people and countries in this world that really do not want to get involved in international conflicts the same way we did, say, in the 80s and the 90s. There seems to be a lot of apprehension about it based on various wars and skirmishes and terrorist attacks from groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda. Countries are just not as keen on getting involved in certain matters unless it's deemed to be necessary. Well, I think when a country is starting to use chemical weapons again against their own people, that's about as close to being necessary as anything I could think of, Scott. So I think the, the way basically to do it, and this is what the United States is going to have to consider doing, is one, either find a way to work within a, a, an ally within the Arab world or Middle East to calm the Syrians down, which is unlikely, but that's the first step you have to take. If that doesn't work... I think that basically Donald Trump is going to go back to his, you know, his fits of fire and fury yet again, and will have to probably launch some sort of an airstrike against Syria, hopefully with the help of other countries, not just Israel, but others around the world who believe in democracy and freedom, and maybe that will make an, have some sort of an input, or, or at least some sort of a, it'll make some sort of a position known that Western nations are not going to put up with this any longer. And failing all of that, if it doesn't stop it, you got to bring down the Assad regime. It sh- this regime will Russia stand down several years ago. Will Russia stand by though and let that happen? Well, that's an interesting point because you have to now look at the whole set of discussions that have happened between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. <clears throat> In other words, do they mean anything? Yeah. Or or they just talk and then basically it's just two leaders mugging for the cameras and hoping for a little bit of publicity for themselves, but when push comes to shove, if there's going to be a fight, they'll oppose one another. I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, we live in a very volatile world. It's not a safe world at all, and the, the times that we live in are very, very difficult. And just due to the fact that people gained a little bit of sense of comfort in the fact that Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea are going to hopefully meet in about a month's time, It doesn't mean that everything else has resolved itself. And Russia, whether you like it or not, is and remains a problem with Vladimir Putin as leader. I'm not saying that Putin's going to take a gun and send all his troops in and try to reclaim all the lost territory and rebuild the old Soviet Union. But really, I think behind the scenes, he would love to try, and he would love to do it if he thought he could get away with it. So, yes, I mean, if if push comes to shove and the United States has to make some sort of a comment or statement or has to set some sort of a tone with Russia, we have to hope that Donald Trump will put aside his building bridges with Russia idea, which I don't think has necessarily worked all so well, and start moving in a different direction. What this will also probably do is the planned Trump-Putin meeting in Washington Hmm. will be over pretty fast. Uh, What's the chance of this escalating into something bigger? Is, 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 is Is it worth it for Russia? Well, again, this is a very different Russian government that we're looking at and a very different Russian leader. Vladimir Putin is very similar to the old communist leaders, Joseph Stalin, Lenin, etc., in the sense that not all of them necessarily wanted to grab enormous amounts of territory. That was, for example, never Lenin's position. It was more Stalin's position. But I think that he sort of looks to them as sort of a model of where the Russian bear 
can actually rebuild itself. You know, the hammer and sickle is gone. All those images are mostly gone except for museums and a few statues that exist both in Russia and around the world. But the imagery, or at least the identity of what that communist empire, the evil empire, stood for at one point in time, I think Vladimir Putin would love to rebuild the Iron Curtain if he possibly could. And I know that sounds a bit savage, but I think that's really the way he looks at it. If you read any books or any papers or any journal articles from people who have either worked hand-in-hand with Vladimir Putin or know the man quite well or had something to do with him in his old state as a secret serviceman, I think people realize that Vladimir Putin has ambitions to do something else. The question is, what is that something else? I don't think it necessarily means we're going to be starting World War III or it's going to lead to a series of major uh, skirmishes and battles. But what may have to happen is that if Russia doesn't want to engage in that level and would rather see, say, Syria drop to some degree, they may actually try to stay out of it. But one of the advantages that they have with the United States leaving Syria, and you may have discussed this on air, Scott, I'm not sure, is that if the U.S. does leave Syria... That leaves an entire route open through the Mediterranean that Russia has never seen or experienced in its entire history. That is something Vladimir Putin, if he really wants to be this great conqueror and really wants to be this image that he sees of himself, either as a former communist leader or going further back to Peter the Great, this would be his greatest opportunity to push Russian influence even further into a part of the world where, yes, some countries like them, yes, some leaders will deal with them, but never to the extent that he could possibly have if the Americans basically say that we've had enough of Syria, we've had enough of Damascus, we're leaving. So that is the big issue in itself. It's really a question here of how Russia how far Russia wants to go, and how far Russia wants to take it. The U.S. has to work in their own self-interest, as Canada and other countries do, but we have to sort of see where the Russians are heading before we make any decision as to whether this is going to escalate into something else other than just basically a one-on-one situation between Syria and the democratic countries of the world. Why would Assad launch an attack like this now, especially with what happened the last time he did it, and that being retaliation from the states? Well, unfortunately, I I guess you can go back to the argument that there are obviously world leaders, and this isn't a surprise to anyone listening to your station, who are just not in command of themselves, so to speak. They have these visions of grandeur and believe that they can do more, be more, and are far, far stronger than anyone else in the world. Or... If we use, say, a juxtaposition with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, the belief that words can be used, and by thumping your chest enough, you can make yourself out to be a much more powerful country than you actually are. Syria has been hammered during the period of the Arab Spring, and the Syrian government fighting against the rebels, those being Syrian rebels, obviously killed a lot of people, destroyed the Syrian National Army to some degree, and has left Syria in a far more wounded state than it's ever been before. So why would Assad try something like this? My guess is he senses that he doesn't, or at least he feels that the world isn't going to do very much if he does this sort of an attack. Or maybe this is the way he wants to fight it. Maybe he believes that his army or that his country will all unite behind this cause and if the United States or any other country tries to start some, something with them, that they'll fight back. I think what he simply doesn't seem to realize or understand 
is while he maintains political control pretty much with an iron fist, it doesn't mean that the Syrian people necessarily want to stand by him if he wants to declare war in a country that is much stronger than they are and can destroy them very easily. Consi- and I think that's the real key. Considering who Trump has picked his en- picked as his enemies, uh, why not Assad? Well, I mean, he has attacked them, but he's certainly not. You know, he's not. Tw- he's not tweeting about him all the time. I mean, he certainly right. will be now. But uh, you know, again, is this something to do with the relationship with Russia? Well, I mean, look, you can you can use the other another example if you want in history, which we're dealing with right now, which is Donald Trump dealing with Iran and the nuclear deal falling apart. The Iranian government has come out and said that the U.S. will regret it to some degree, but you know, should Donald Trump get wor- worked up? about Iran at this stage. Yes, the Iranians obviously can keep motoring through parts of the Middle East, you know, the more ISIS basically falls apart and falls by the wayside. As we know, the terrorist organization now actually doesn't control anything whatsoever. It's always its base of operations have been wiped out for the most part. But should basically Donald Trump start wars with every single person who blows back at him? My guess is that Syria, much like Iran, hasn't been as big a deal for the time being simply because his focus was on North Korea and other countries. I think he was just more worried or more concerned about that. Look, even his predecessor, Barack Obama, who obviously doesn't see eye to eye with Mr. Trump, told him before he left office that the biggest issue you're going to have to deal with in your presidency, be it one or two terms, is North Korea. So that's primarily where the Trump administration put their focus. Now, with Syria sort of beating the war, I wouldn't say necessarily war drones, they're beating their chests a little bit and trying to state that they're going to start again with these terrible chemical weapon attacks, especially on their own people, I think that Donald Trump will have to say enough is enough at some point. But the key here, and I think this is going to be important, is that some countries, because there are a lot of nations who don't like Syria and don't like Assad and would like to see him gone, I think he may be able to get international support to some degree based on his thoughts, theories, whether he does an airstrike or just a general ground mission. And I think that may be helpful, too, because if the United States fights it on their own, sure, they'll win. It won't be too, it won't be too, too difficult, but the international community will frown upon their actions. If the international community, or at least components of it, are willing to align with the United States, and I'm speaking hypothetically at this stage, that would be much better for Donald Trump to spend more time and energy focusing on Syria rather than, say, North Korea, where things have really toned down a fair bit. So again, like every world leader, you focus on certain countries and not others, depending on the situation. So I think that's why Trump hasn't paid a lot of attention to Syria and wanted to withdraw the troops but now I think he realizes over this past weekend that may not be the matter. He just not maybe not able to at all. All right, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on Kinder Morgan. Uh, it, it was announced over the weekend that they have uh, suspended all non-essential activities relating to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, now they say uh, they got till May 31st to uh, clear this all up. What's going on? Uh, obviously, they they feel their shareholders are at risk with all of this indecision. They are. What happens now? I mean, is this push coming to shove right now? Yeah, this is unfortunately a game of political chicken between Kinder Morgan and the B.C. government led by Premier or NDP Premier John Horgan. It's been so unusual what's happened out there, and I'm sure you've covered on your show many times, 
that you actually have the two mainstream NDP provincial parties or governments in this country, one in Alberta, one in B.C., not even seeing eye to eye when it comes to pipelines. That is something, isn't it? It really is. I mean, think about it. Rachel Notley is actually, I wouldn't say a wild booster of pipelines, but she's not opposed to them either. So the John Horgan, the B.C. Premier, doesn't even have an ally that way. Um, I think the only risk here is the longer this game of political chicken between Hor- the Horgan government and Kinder Morgan go on, it's going to be difficult, as you correctly pointed out, for shareholders who are at huge risk. It will also obviously ruin opportunities to build pipelines around the world. Whether people like it or not, pipelines actually do create jobs, businesses, and economic opportunities. They are good things, not bad things for this country, and quite frankly, good things, not bad things for the rest of the world, too. So Canada And a lot better than rail, that's for sure. Well, I agree with you, yes. <laughs> There's no doubt of that. So where is the Prime Minister on this? Why is he not... Why is he letting this drag out? You know, in fairness... We don't, you know, we live in a country, and you obviously know this, Scott, I don't have to tell anybody this, where we don't necessarily have an iron will. I mean, we can't tell premiers or, or provinces what to do. If they want to fight with one another, they will. If a prime minister is willing to sit down to try to mediate some sort of a dispute, well, then he'll get involved. Justin Trudeau thus far has basically been on side with Kinder Morgan. I think, you know, aside from the many things that I dislike this prime minister of the on, he is not opposed to pipelines. He naturally has an environmental lobby around him. They do give him some money, of course, and they give him political support. You know, that's part of the game. But at the same time, most liberals understand that there are benefits they, they, uh, to pipelines. They realize there are risks, too. So what will happen a month from now? So what happens in May? Well, it depends how long this goes. If, if Horgan and Kinder Morgan are able to somehow reach an agreement, whatever it is, well, then that's the end of it, and it doesn't matter. But if this continues to intensify, and the pipeline isn't built, and there's an enormous amount of waste of money, time, and resources going on at the same time, and nothing is happening in general... Well, Justin Trudeau, even though he doesn't love to get involved in conflict, as we've seen, in fact, he'd probably prefer to go off and visit India again than have to deal with this a second time, um, I think he realizes that he may have to get involved in this pipeline dispute, as he has in a light fashion in the past. Because you're quite right, and I, I don't disagree with you. In the end, if, they, if, these co- if this company and this government are at loggerheads, and there's no natural ally for John Horgan, and he's basically doing it to ensure that the Green Party stays in his coalition so that he stays in power, well, the Prime Minister may not like it, but he's going to have to call Horgan in, people who are representatives of Kinder Morgan, and try to find a resolution. And he'll have to get directly involved. Michael Tobis with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Bill Blair said on an interview of Global TV's The West Blog that there will be severe restrictions on celebrity endorsements in regard to recreational marijuana. What does this mean as we move forward? And again, just another challenge faced uh, as they try to, uh, I guess, get this all organized and uh, legalized. By the end of the summer, originally, tentatively, I guess, although nobody says they actually said the word Canada Day, but that's obviously been pushed back. 
as uh, there's a lot more work involved here than uh, initially thought. Let's bring in Brad Poulos, instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, and with us now. Brad, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hi, Scott. So I remember hearing, um, I guess it was last year, that one of the large marijuana growing operations had brought Snoop Dogg on board to uh, consult and, and, and I'm guessing market uh, in the end of all of this. Now that's not the case. That or I guess he's still involved, but from what we're hearing, there's not going to be any celebrity endorsements allowed on this product at all. That's absolutely true. And it's also not news. <laughs> so this has been known to the industry since um, the task force put out their recommendations about uh, eight months ago or so now, um, and McClellan's task force on uh, cannabis regulation and, and legalization. Um, the Snoop Dogg agreement with uh, Canopy slash Tweed does predate that, but um, there are other deals that have been done since then that really one has to shake their head at because, like I say, the industry's been well aware of the fact that you were not going to be able to have celebrity endorsements or use cute little cartoon characters or anything that might possibly. Uh, you said a deal signed that you would shake your head at. In other words, there's probably no sense in doing these deals if, in fact, you can't use the celebrity endorsement endorsement attached to it? Yeah, that's where I was going with that. So a good example would be the Tragically Hip deal with um, Up Cannabis or New Strike Resources. Uh, now, they're just investors and they're this is not an endorsement deal but of course when it was signed a lot of people not in the industry made the gross assumption that the hip would be able to be spokespeople for this product and that's absolutely not the case uh that being said is being an investor uh enough to have that influence because whether you're using it in your marketing or not i'm sure the people investigating your product are going to know where the origins are and does that not hold a bit of mystique? I mean, how are they going to stop this? It's, it's, uh, it's pretty crafty. And in fact, that's the smartest way to do it, is just position it as a investment only. Um, but of course, you get the, the cachet and you get the, uh, all, of the, all of the hype that comes with having a tragically hip be one of your investors. I think we'll probably see more of these investment type deals. Um, we've just seen uh, Gene Simmons become the chief evangelical officer of one of the other companies. So you'll see those sorts of things. People will do whatever they can to try to skirt the rules, but we won't have um, straight up endorsements of product. Will there be a rule issued that says you cannot tell us who your investors are? Because again, someone's going to write an article on that or do a news story or what have you. And, you know, again, whether the publicity's in advertising or on the front of the package is one thing. I mean, people are still going to know about it. You, you could see that, Scott, but that would kind of run counter to another trend, which is actually to have a little more transparency into who investors are, major shareholders especially. So uh, I don't think we're going to see that rule come into play. How can producers educate consumers or, or the organization that is uh, uh, the LCB organization that's going to be distributing this? The name escapes me now. Um, how do they educate consumers about different products without actually talking about the products or um, or, or promoting them in any way. Um, uh, sure. You know, obviously, the uh, Chief Blair, or sorry, Bill Blair, he's not Chief anymore, uh, said there will be severe restrictions, oddly um, more severe than are with, with alcohol. So how are consumers supposed to know anything about the product? 
Yeah, the company you're talking about is the Ontario Cannabis Retail Corporation, the right, OCRC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really the only thing available to these major companies right now is uh, their social media channels, and they're making great use of them. So That's is that cool. not considered advertising, I guess? Uh, strictly no. No, it's... Uh, so in other words, they can... They can, Now, let me ask you this. Can can you have someone like a Snoop Dogg on your social media challenge or, or channel if, if they're an investor, quote, investor in your company? I don't see why you couldn't. But remember, it's a closed channel. It's a social media channel. It's not, it's not mass advertising. It's not advertising on CHML or, right. or on a billboard. So um, how can they do this for recreational marijuana and not for alcohol? Uh, over time, will we see those gaps narrow? I think we will see the gaps narrow. We do have fairly restrictive advertising rules for alcohol, though. Yeah. Um, very similar rules in terms of celebrity endorsements and um, um, use of cute cartoon characters and that sort of thing. All of that is outlawed. You can't, you can't make alcohol look at all attractive. You can't look, make it look fun to drink. <laughs> so um, it, there's actually not that much space between the alcohol and the cannabis regs. The, the cannabis ones are just simply a little bit uh, tougher. So um, uh, is that is obviously it's different in the states than it is in Canada. But in Canada, you can't do, have a celebrity endorse alcohol uh, either. And I'm, I'm thinking of you know Dan Aykroyd had vodka. Um, you know George Clooney has tequila. I mean the fact that they're owners sure. or operators that kind of exempts them from it. That's I think that's the idea. Mike Weir has his wine. Yeah, uh, Gretzky. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Wayne Gretzky as well, and that's uh, so that's we can exactly so we can happened. see we can see Wayne Gretzky's name on a bottle of wine, but we can't see Wayne Gretzky out in a rink having a nice glass after a hard practice. Right, that's exactly right. <laughs> so um, again, moving forward on this, what's it going to be like once this is finally introduced, and uh, once you're in an OCRC store, how are you going to be able to tell products apart? Yeah, there will be a little bit of advertising allowed at the point of sale, province by province. So the federal regulations allow point of sale advertising. So that would mean once you're inside the store. Uh, But then, of course, every province will have their own internal rules about how they'll actually, you know, allow that to take place. And we don't have any visibility into that yet. Uh, that's obviously my next question. Every province has different distribution going across. Will we see these rules get stretched a little bit from province to province? Well, certainly we'll see them be applied differently. Absolutely. You can expect that the West is going to be a much less restrictive than, uh, the Eastern part of Canada. That's the way it's sort of shaping up right now. Uh, Obviously, people are going to draw the comparison between alcohol uh, promotion and, and this. Uh, do you think this will end up with less advertising with alcohol and, and such, or eventually just more advertising of marijuana? Um, I don't really And I don't mean advertising. I, I guess marketing is, is, the, is the better word to use. Because obviously, so, obviously, we know when we walk into an LCBO, we have a good idea of what the brands stand for, what, you know, a good brand from a bad brand from a mediocre brand, this, that, and the other, what you're getting. Uh, and, of course, let's not forget the glossy catalog. Uh, h- how do you promote and, and, well, and tell people what's in a store that sells marijuana? So, obviously, uh, places outside of Ontario are going to have some different rules. Here in Ontario... Uh, it's really up in the air. It's it, quite frankly, 
let's not pretend that on some magical day in August or September, mm-hmm. all of the current users are going to start going to the OCRC to buy their cannabis because yeah. that's just not realistic. <laughs> so whether they advertise or not isn't going to matter a lot to the majority of current recreational users. Yeah, advertise when you can. When you consider all the issues facing getting this out uh, rolled out by summer, I guess uh, marketing is probably the least uh, of their worries at this point, is it? Exactly, yeah. Access to supply is going to be the number one concern for a little while anyway. So that moving, uh, that being said, moving forward, is that the greatest challenge of getting this done by the end of summer is somehow control, not so much controlling distribution, but having enough supply so that these stores will have something in them? Yeah, and also anything supply deals with the various, because there's 13 regimes that have to be dealt with in, in Canada, um, the big companies, well, all of the companies, are also busy like crazy signing up the individual retailers in um, in these 13 jurisdictions, the 10 provinces and the three territories. So that's another big activity. But yeah, absolutely. Creating a, a, a big footprint um, is the name of the game right now. It's a real estate grab. So uh, moving forward, when do you see this happening? Uh, they, I guess there was a fictitious date of July uh, 1st, Canada Day for this, and, and now that's been pushed back. When do you see this realistically happening? So realistically, realistically, as long as the vote on June 7th goes yes, I think we're probably looking at sometime in September. Um, it's possible sometime in August, but highly, highly unlikely. And... I think most people are guessing it's going to be sometime in September. Uh, I remember chatting to various experts such as yourself in regard to when Ontario finally got uh, beer in grocery stores. And I remember asking the question, what will happen the day after uh, sales of beer are allowed in grocery stores? Will will it be Armageddon? And of course, the sun came up and set and nothing changed. Will, what, yeah. what will life be like after September for Canadians? I don't think it'll be a whole lot different. Uh, obviously, there'll be a subset of users that will be quite happy to use the legal system, especially those in provinces where they're better served than Ontario and Quebec. Um, certainly Manitoba, eastward, or sorry, westward, um, they'll be well served. Um, but I don't think it's going to be a dramatically different looking Canada in the fall than what it is right now. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking of the headlines of late, severe restrictions, uh, limited supply, only 40 stores. Uh, at the end of the day, is this going to be a boom or a bust for the province? For the province, I don't think it's going to be a boom anytime soon. They're, they're going to have to wrap their head around trying to push the black market out of business. And in order to do that, you need to compete. And in order to compete, you have to have a footprint of stores, you have to have a really good quality uh, assortment of products at a reasonable price, not overtaxed, and none of that's happening right now. So are they really competing or are they just promoting? I think they're playing the game. They're doing exactly what they have to do. Let's face it, I don't think that the Liberal government of Ontario ever asked to have this file thrown on their lap, and they're doing the bare minimum that they can in order to fulfill their obligation. Hmm. Uh, the fact that every province is doing this differently, how does that make the job, especially for someone like a Bill Blair, even more difficult? Uh, and Ontario's always been accused of sort of having archaic laws in this regard. Will this, will this point this out to the rest of the country and perhaps pressure them to loosen them up a bit? 
So I don't think that the Ontario government cares much what the rest of Canada thinks, so I can't see And that some would debate whether they care about the province, but that's another <laughs> issue. Yeah. Um, Bill Blair's job doesn't get a whole lot harder, but it, but certainly the, the job of the executives in these licensed producers, which, by the way, are fully legal businesses, certainly gets much more difficult when you have to deal with 13 different regimes for access to a sales channel. What do you think the biggest challenge is going to be come the fall? Is it going to be supply? So the biggest challenge for the industry it will likely be supply. Yes, I think so. And that will likely be the case for the foreseeable future, probably sometime into, say, 2019. And what about the province? What will be the biggest challenge for the province? Getting customers. <laughs> I think with 40, somewhere between 40 and 60 stores, they're going to have a hard time attracting any serious cannabis users. Will anybody get any idea what this is all going to look like when it's finished, or will it be just, okay, it's opening next week, here you go, and you go, oh, what's that? Like, I mean, with a, like I remember back to the old days going to the LCBO with my dad, and there were guys behind a, ca- a counter with a shirt and a tie on, and you'd had to fill out a pad of paper and pass it through, you know, a little opening in the, you know, in the kiosk yeah. there. Well, so, welcome, uh, to, welcome to the Ontario Cannabis Retail Corporation. Is it going to be the same? Pretty close. Yes, there will not be any product on display. You won't be able to touch it, see it. It'll be put in a bag before it's given to you, just like your dad's Mickey got put in a brown paper bag. Heaven forbid you should ever see a bottle of alcohol in an alcohol store. It's the same sort of approach. So how is online sales going to knock all that, uh, like just kick that on its can? I mean, is, is, is an on sales going to eliminate, online sales going to eliminate all of that? Uh, online sales already has a good piece of the business. Certainly, um, it has 100% of the medical business, as you probably know, yeah. but it also has a good piece of the illicit market. There are several, um, you know, black gray market websites mm-hmm. operating in Canada today. They're going to continue to do just fine. All right, Brad Poulos has been with us, instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, talking about uh, what it is going to look like when recreational marijuana is eventually legalized coming up sometime this fall. Brad, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.